In just over a decade, we've witnessed how agile software development began as a grassroots movement and eventually progressed to become a mainstream methodology. Agile's approach aims to change the software development process by inviting organizations to invest in a philosophy that would ideally increase productivity and ROI and meet business goals, all while creating better environments for IT teams and individuals. Greetings, listeners. My name is Kevin Montalbo, content editor at Toro Cloud. In this episode of Cocktails, we talk to one of the foremost thought leaders in the agile software development space as he shares with us the concept of energized work, the evolution of team rooms, applying agile methodology by looking at complexity in large-scale enterprises, and his advice on how organizations can invest in agility. Joining us today for a round of cocktails, as always, is TorCloud CEO and founder, David Brown. How have you been, David? I've been very well, thanks, Kevin. I love the cocktails in the background. <laughs> All right. And our guest for today is one of the first 10 people to sign the Agile Manifesto when it was released to the public in 2001. In 2005, he was an inaugural recipient of the Agile Alliance's Gordon Pask Award for contributions to Agile practice. The first edition of his book, The Art of Agile Development, was released in 2007 and became a much-loved classic. He went on to create other influential works, such as the Agile Fluency Model with Diana Larson, and is a popular speaker at events around the world. James Shore, welcome to the podcast. How are things? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. All right, uh, let's dive right in. You're currently working on the second edition of your book, uh, The Art of Agile Development. So what changes in the industry or discoveries have you made uh, in the past decade that spurred you on to start doing a second edition? Well, the first edition came out in 2007. So that's, uh, what, 13 years now? Mm -hmm. Boy, that seems like a lot. And, uh, well, you know, a lot has changed since then. The, the book was originally written to be sort of evergreen, and I think it succeeded in that way. But nonetheless, I've, I've learned a lot since then. And the biggest thing that's happened since 2007 is, uh, you know, cloud-based software has really just exploded. And the DevOps movement came along. Um, and also, as a consequence of doing that first edition of the book, I actually got together with Diana Larson, and we taught a number of courses based on that book. And one of the outgrowths of that collaboration was the Agile Fluency Model. So uh, it just seemed like after 13 years, I also my, my publisher came to me and said, we're getting requests for, for it to be updated. It seemed like it was time. So... Uh, the, the new edition's got a lot more about uh, cloud and DevOps in it. It brings in the Agile Fluency model, talks a lot more about adoption and how that works. And uh, it's not going to come out for another six months or more. Fingers crossed. We'll see how that comes. So I've got a lot of writing still to do, but so far I'm really happy with it. I'm going through and I'm just touching everything. I'm revising absolutely everything. And have you, have you uh, witnessed the Agile process uh, change or has it just been that cloud adoption and DevOps has introduced new uh, implementations of the agile process? So, you know, agile. So first, agile is not really a process. It's more of a philosophy or a way of thinking about software development. Mm -hmm. um, Martin Fowler has, uh, has his description of agile, which he calls the essence of agile development, which I think is really dead on. He says it's adaptive rather than predictive and people oriented rather than process oriented. And 
I don't think that's really changed. I, Martin actually came up with that characterization before the term agile was even coined. And I think it's still true today. And I think even today, 20, nearly 20 years after the Agile Manifesto was written, there are a lot of companies who just don't get it. Like they don't get that core idea of adaptability rather than predictability and people orientation over process orientation. So I would say the core ideas of Agile, no, they haven't really changed. But Agile is a big tent. Like what we do in Agile today is not what we did in Agile in 2000. Um, we're constantly bringing in new ideas. So Lean Startup by Eric Ries has come in. There's been a lot more work in the area of how do you do large scale development with Agile. So these ideas are always coming in. DevOps movement, of course, is taking XP's ideas of continuous integration, which is another thing that's sort of been misinterpreted over the years. And bringing it to cloud development and doing continuous uh, deployment and delivery. So I would say Agile's evolving as because it's always taking in new ideas, but the core ideas haven't changed. And I would say the vast majority of companies that say they're doing Agile have yet to adopt those core ideas. And why would that be? It's hard and it's a culture change. And it's, it's so much easier. It's so much easier as some as somebody in a large company who's been tasked to bring in agile it's so much easier to hire somebody who says they're going to do it and they're going to make it easy so there are so many courses that you can buy and pay for that are two-day courses where you'll get stamped with a certification afterwards and some of them are really good courses but there's only so much you can do in two days uh, you're going to get stamped with a certification then you say ta-da we're agile actually becoming agile as an organization requires changing habits, culture, and ways of thinking about your work. That doesn't happen in two days. And it takes, a, it takes an in-depth, thoughtful approach that's at odds with people who have been tasked to do something they don't necessarily understand and want to just pay money for. Speaking of cultural, uh, you recently published an excerpt of your book, which is on energized work. Now, it's mm -hmm. quite refreshing to see a book about software development, Agile, that dives deep into energizing and motivating the workforce. Can you tell us more about your thought process behind the section of this book? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think that actually really ties back to what David was saying a moment ago, because this idea of energized work, it goes way, way back to the very beginnings of Agile, and it's not my invention at all. I remember I said that uh, Martin Fowler described the essence of Agile as being people-oriented rather than process-oriented. That really shows in this idea of energized work, the idea that, so prior to Agile, uh, the, the big approach of the day was these process, these big heavyweight processes that the, the sort of the underlying theory was that if we have a well-defined process, it doesn't really matter who we put through that process. The process is a real asset and we can exchange people as needed who are notoriously unreliable and tend to do things like want money and quit and stuff like that. So we're going to rely on our process to be our real asset and we will just pump people through this process and we'll get really nice consistent results. They did get consistent results, but I wouldn't call them nice because it turns out that people are really important for software development, right? We all know that. Um, there was, uh, <laughs> oh, a, a five, six, seven years ago, I don't know. There was, I don't know if I should say this on, on the podcast. Maybe you can bleep it out. But there was this movement called Programming Motherfucker, right? So uh, it's basically that core idea. The, 
how we do programming matters and the skill that we have as people matters and Agile made that really central. And one of those ideas from the first edition of Extreme Programming, which was the first really big popular Agile method, was the idea of 40 hour week, uh, which says basically, you do your best work when you're not worn out. Mm -hmm. And then Kent Beck, who wrote that, uh, who created Extreme Programming, uh, did some work in Switzerland and came to understand that not everybody thinks of work in terms of 40 hour weeks. So in the second edition of Extreme Programming, he called it Energized Work. And for the first edition of our book, we just took that name exactly because uh, we're all about building on what came before. And uh, it's funny you should mention this specific practice because of all the things that, uh, all the stuff we've written for the second edition, that practice, that one had nearly zero changes. Everything else has had lots of updates, but that one had nearly zero changes. You talk about uh, process oriented, of course, yeah, organizations from the industrial revolution, that's what they became you know, really, really good at, right? Is they became sausage machines and they were good at producing uh, that sausage, whatever that product was, that organization, but varying away from that sausage was something small business could do, not necessarily enterprise, right? And so when we talk about the agile uh, manifesto and uh, you know, being an agile organization implies change, being able to adapt to the market and change and, and, and be quick at changing and, and being quick to respond to change. And, and so it's, it's, a, it's a total mindset change a, away from being process oriented, which I, I think is an industrial revolution, um, you know, concept, which worked super well for the last 150 years. Um, and so now we're asking organizations to be fundamentally different. They were really good at making sausages. And now you want them to make pies and, you know, sausage rolls and everything else as well, right? Right. <laughs> Whatever yeah. the market, you know, t you know, fancies at the time. Is that, is that, is that a reasonable analogy? It's, it is a reasonable analogy. I think a lot of early software development was based on this idea. I don't know how true it was, but uh, I'm actually just been working on a section of the book today talking about some of the history of, uh, of software development. And, uh, you know, there's this idea of waterfall that people say is sort of a straw man, but is how people actually thought how software should be developed, you know, in the 20th century. And um, a lot of that was based on this sort of assembly line model of, of, uh, of the Industrial Revolution and of uh, the early 1900s. Uh, there's Frederick Taylor who had his scientific management, which was all about seeing workers as kind of lazy, uh, undisciplined people who had to be controlled in order to get good results out of. But then uh, the, the manufacturing world actually left the software world behind and has came up with the idea of lean manufacturing, which was introduced by a Toyota with the Toyota production system. And you've probably heard of just-in-time manufacturing. When I was growing up, this is just betraying my age a little bit, but uh, you were to order something on, well, there was no online. If you were to order something from a catalog, this was like the internet, except it came on a paper and in the mail. Uh, if you order something from a catalog, everything would say, allow six to eight weeks for delivery. And now, of course, you order something online and you get it within a couple of days or you're pissed off that's because of these short supply chains and the innovation that's been happening as a result of lean manufacturing. Agile is actually taking a lot of the same underlying theory and adapting it to design rather than manufacturing, to software development rather than manufacturing. Uh, but the, the, the uh, phrase agile is used 
in a much broader context these days, isn't it? You can talk about becoming an agile organization. You're not talking about just software development and an approach to software development. You're talking about a mindset for the organization itself and the ability to be listening to the customer and the market and your employees and business partners and, and being quick to respond to the, the demands of, you know, of, of those people and the change that they're undergoing as well. Is, you know, everyone's undergoing this digital transformation, yourself included, but you have to take into account the transformation that your customers, employees and business partners are also going through, right? So it's, it's software is you know, fun, un, underlying. We talk a lot about that and facilitating it, but it hasn't the phrase also being used in a much broader context in terms of uh, the way organizations are thinking of themselves? Yeah, I think it has. And that's, and I'm not sure what to think about that. Um, you talked about how these ideas are really more something that's easier for small businesses and medium businesses to, to accept. And that's certainly something that we saw in the early days of Agile. Uh, it started out and it was all the early adopters and innovators, uh, generally the smaller companies that really embraced Agile. But they had so much success, it attracted a lot of attention. You asked me earlier, uh, why aren't more people doing Agile as for real, as opposed to just using the name? Because it's easy to call yourself Agile, right? There's no trademark. You can just smack it on the door. You're done. We're Agile. Congratulations. Um, that's what I see with a lot of these bigger companies is they are now it's now the term is digital transformation, but it's still the same old stuff. It's let's take, let's take these agile ideas and actually use them to transform our business. And that's really, really hard because it takes cultural change. And that is something that big companies are not optimized for, uh, except for a very, very few. Speaking of uh, change, let's dive into this a little bit more deeper. Uh, there's another excerpt that you published recently, and it's about this concept of the team room. Now, I understand that the team room can either be uh, physical or virtual, but with a global pandemic forcing people to work remotely from home, has the approach towards collaboration within this team room, has it changed uh, from when you initially conceptualized it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> no kidding. Uh, the pandemic, of course, has been... Um, a real, a real change to the system for everybody. And it's actually impressive how, how much I think we're all able to weather it. I think in software development, we've got that capability uh, much more easily than you know, more physical occupations. The first edition of the book, um, it was really clear. It said, this is something that we know how to do when you're in person and we don't know how to do when you're remote. But that was 13 years ago. And uh, actually, before that first edition was published, I actually created a startup with a friend of mine mm -hmm. uh, called Card Meeting with the intention of let's make team room work when you're remote. And that, that startup failed, <laughs> as, as they tend to do. But, but now, the same ideas you can see, and I'm not going to claim to be the, you know, the instigator of these ideas because it's pretty obvious, but the same ideas of having a collaborative workspace where you can move cards and stickies around as if you were in person is now found in tools like Mural and in Miro. And uh, they, unlike us, have actually succeeded. We had a product that basically did that, but it, uh, it was never more than an alpha or a beta. Uh, they've actually made it work as a real proper production project uh, product. So we have the tools now, I think, to make it possible to interact in the same kinds of ways that we had when we were physically together, this rich communication where you can have multiple people, multiple people collaborating on the same uh, discussion board 
the same whiteboard at the same time, uh, which is really, I think, essential for an agile style of collaboration. So that's something that uh, if the pandemic hadn't come along, I don't know if I would have leaned into that as hard in the book, in the second edition of the book as I am. Now it's front and center. The first edition said, you really don't know how to do remote. Uh, we don't know how to do remote well in an agile environment. The second edition, I was going to say, well, we do know how to do it and here's some tools. And I was going to put that off in the side of one chapter somewhere. But now every single thing I write, when I say, uh, here's how you do collaboration with agile, I, it, they're, they're both side by side. Here's how you do it in person and here's how you do it remote. And uh, it's actually not that different because we do have the tools now to make that remote collaboration possible. Let's talk about applying the Agile framework in a large-scale enterprise. So in one of your previous articles, you described how complexity in software development is inevitable, as we cannot eliminate it, but we can move it around. So from the monolith and microservice approach to using nanoservices and a hybrid approach via a mono repository, how do you think large-scale enterprises should look at and deal with complexity? Yeah, uh, that's that's another great question because I think complexity, you know, this is coding over cocktails, right? So we've got an audience of, of programmers and I think the essence of programming is managing complexity. Uh, that is really what programming is all about. And that's what software design is all about because the computer, of course, doesn't care. We could write in assembly, we could write in C, we could write in Java, we can write in Python. Doesn't matter to the computer. Under the, under the covers, it's all just bytecode, binary, right? Uh, the programming is for us humans. And what we're doing when we program is we're managing complexity. Every time you write a function, you're managing complexity. Every time you write a class or a module, you're managing complexity. If you choose to use a functional language versus a uh, procedural language, it's because you think the functional languages, it makes it easier to manage complexity. Mm -hmm. So this is even more true in a large scale environment. Because the problem is, I, I ran into this when I, was, when I was a kid, when I was 15 or something, one of my first big programs, D&D &D Character Creator, because I'm a, I'm a geek and every geek's got to write a D&D &D program. So D&D &D Character Creator written in AppleSoft Basic, which was a lovely programming language that had two character variable names. Well, technically you could write as many characters as you want in the variable name, but only the first two characters counted. So, and it used line numbers. So it's go to's and go subs, right? And so I'm programming along, sling in line numbers, go sub 10,000, CL string, dollar sign meant string, uh, CL dollar sign, AN, AN percent, all this stuff. And I must have gotten called for dinner or something like that because literally between one moment and the next, it went from all in my head to I had no idea how this thing worked. And that was because it had outgrown the level of complexity my brain could handle. All software outgrows the level of complexity your brain can handle if it gets big enough. And large-scale software development, by definition, is too complex for one brain to handle. So how are you going to manage that? And that is where these ideas like microservices come in. But I think they're fundamentally flawed. I, microservices aren't fundamentally flawed. They're fine. But as a tool for managing complexity, the people are using it like a silver bullet, right? Because if you can't build a monolith with good management of complexity, there is no way you can build a microservice mesh with a good degree of complexity. All you're doing is you're kicking the can down the road. But if you thought dealing with a monolith that was uh, poorly designed was bad, just wait until you get a microservice mesh that's poorly designed. 
now you've got all the problems of the monolith of not knowing how things are supposed to fit together and being able to, you know, link it all together combined with distributed programming, which is God awful to begin with. Um, the, the one saving grace is it is a lot harder to use stuff like globals in a microservice environment. And that is the source of a lot of uh, mistaken coupling. But uh, I think that over the next couple of years, we're going to start to see microservices have been around long enough that they've hit that magic level where they're no longer new code. They're now legacy code. And that's what sucks. It's not the language. It's not the design. It's the fact that it's old and you didn't write it. We're getting to the point now that we're going to start seeing some major, major uh, uh, reports of major problems with microservices just because the people who couldn't design monoliths also didn't change their design skills when they went to microservices. And um, uh, so, so what is the process to manage the complexity? What, would, you know, what, what do you recommend to manage that process? It's, I, I don't have a simple recommendation. It is fundamentally about design. And um, in a large scale system, when you're thinking about which teams you have, what you're really thinking about is what is the design of our software? Because of course there's Conway's law that says the design of the software reflects the design of the organization and vice versa. So when you're thinking about uh, how you want to set up your teams, you need to also think about how you want to set up your software. And that means minimizing coupling between teams, having clear interfaces between teams, being really crisp about how teams depend on each other so that when this team makes a change that affects this team, this team can be aware of it. And if you've got a poorly designed microservice mesh where you don't know that stuff and this team makes a change and it affects all of these other teams, now you've got a problem, especially if they don't know it. Or if they've got- It always comes back to people, right? Whenever we talk about this stuff, it's always coming back to the people. That's right. Team organization, how you structure these stakeholders, whether you get them into the same room together, whether you make them as one team, or whether you make the transparency communication between teams, it all comes back down to people. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I would add to that is that people think, you know, organizational leaders think about the decision of what teams to create as a management decision. But because of Conway's law and because of this management complexity, if you have interdependent teams, if you have teams that depend on each other to ship a product, uh, you don't have a management problem. You have a software design problem. And you've got to put people who are experienced in software design at the head of deciding how those teams are broken up. For example, it's really, really easy and common to say, well, we're going to have our user experience, our user interface front-end people here, and our back-end people here. But what have you just done? Everything that the software does now involves these two teams communicating. It would be so much better if we said, well, no, we're going to take this one thing that we have and we're going to split it into admin with front end and back end and login with front end and back end and, and uh, profile with front end and back end. If you do that, now they still depend on each other, but you don't have every single thing they do depending on every other team. So that's the same thing. You know, when you think about your front end back end coupling, don't create teams that are coupled in the same way that those are. Got it. Put, put your put, make your teams cross-functional. And that's just, you know, that's just the beginning. There's a great book, Team Topologies, that I have not read all the way through, but discusses this sort of stuff in detail that uh, I have a really good feeling about. And I've, it has come very highly recommended. Kevin, our next guest, Ruth Milan. Yeah, <laughs> we're going to check her out. All right. 
Okay, so let's circle back to your book because we're talking of large-scale enterprises here uh, where you advocate the idea that organizations need to buy into the underlying agile philosophy by investing in agility. So as we're down to the last month of 2020, so we're recording this at December, our listeners might want to have an idea of what they can prioritize as they start the new year. So what's the best advice apart from buying your book, of course, uh, that you can give them when it comes to investing in agility? Um, well, they should check out my book, uh, <laughs> at least because uh, until, until it is published, I'm doing an open review. So you can actually see everything I'm working on for free and give your feedback on the mailing list because I'm an agile guy. I take feedback and I act on that and I iterate. Um, so it's all available online right now. Uh, if you go to jameshore.com slash S slash A-O-A-D, Two for Art of Agile Development, second edition. Uh, so you can see this stuff right now. And there is a chapter called Choose, uh, Invest in Agility that has, has these ideas in it. But if I were to, and I think all those investments in that chapter are important, but if I had to narrow it down to just a few, mm -hmm. I would start with uh, buy-in. A, a decision to become agile is a decision is, is not a decision to take lightly. It's a decision that requires people to change their behaviors and their habits. And that's the team members, but it's also managers and it's stakeholders. And you need those people to go into it knowing what they're getting into. So start with the buy-in. And then from there, uh, remember uh, Martin Fowler's essence. It's people-oriented rather than process-oriented. And it's adaptive rather than predictive. So it's going to take the people time to learn. So make sure to account for the fact that your productivity is going to dip where you're going to learn. And it's going to, be, it's going to cause some chaos. And you should manage that chaos well, especially in a large organization. Mm. Um, put your people together on dedicated cross-functional teams that don't have a lot of dependencies on other teams, as we were talking about a moment ago. Um, and when you're thinking about how you do governance in your organization, do you assume a predictive environment? Do you assume that you're gonna say that this is a project that's gonna take a year and it's gonna ship this thing at the end and it's gonna take this long and cost this much. If you do, you don't want Agile, you want a waterfall style process. The decision to use Agile is a decision to say, we think adapting is more important than predicting. If it's not, don't use Agile. It's not gonna do you any good. It's not meant for that. And there's more, but I'll, I'll stop there. Yeah, we'll give them the chance to read on your book or even the excerpt that you're uh, publishing on your Twitter feed. <laughs> Jane Shaw, thanks so much for your time today. Uh, our listeners can uh, obviously follow you, as you say, at jameshaw.com. Uh, and your Twitter, Twitter handle is? It's at James Shaw, pretty easy. Awesome. Thanks so much, and uh, good luck with the rest of your book. We'll certainly be following that excerpts as you as you publish them. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on, and cheers. 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 <laughs> Thank you very much, James Shore, for being with us. To our listeners, what did you think of this episode? Are you taking on any agile development methodologies for your organization? Let us know in the comment section from the podcast platform you're listening to. Also, please visit our website at www.torocloud.com for a transcript of this episode, as well as our blogs and our products. We're also on social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. You can talk to us there because we listen. Just look for Toro Cloud. Again, thank you very much for listening to us today. This has been James Shore, David Brown, and Kevin Montalbo at your service for coding over cocktails.